0: Good morning everyone. It's, uh, it's really good to see all of you here this morning and it's good to see a number of people who have returned from, from holidays. For Craig and Naomi, it must be a pretty tough gig coming from that hard slog of the Swiss Alps and coming home to some nice warmth back here in, in Toowoomba and others who've got family and friends visiting with them this morning. Or even if you've just come to check out Eastgate for the first time, uh, welcome. My name's Steve Adams, I'm the pastor here and have been almost for a year. Almost. Okay, we've been preaching through a series on the the fruit of the Spirit and we're continuing that this morning, hence the the slide up there. Um, So we shall open up in prayer as we trust God to uh, speak to us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, all you do is good. Everything within your character is infinite and good. And everything you do out of your, the infinite uh, nature of your character is good. Everything you declare to us in your word is for our good and for our benefit. As we look to your word this morning, may it instruct us. May us, it remind us to press deeply into you as we totally depend on you today and to the same extent that we did the day that we realised our desperate need for you for salvation. Lord, you haven't just desired that you would save us, but Lord, you have desired to save us and that you would uh, transform us, even while we live in the struggles of this world, to be more like your son, Jesus. And as we continue in our series of the fruit of the Spirit, we pray that uh, you might be drawing us nearer and closer to the source of, of our life, which is Jesus Christ. And from our primary pursuit of him, uh, that we might abound in fruit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're now up to our our third week in our series of the the Fruit of the Spirit. Today is the first time where we begin to actually focus on some of the specifics of some of these attributes that are called the Fruit of the Spirit. And today, as you see up there, today we're going to focus particularly on love. Now when you see that and you think, oh great, I've come to a a sermon on love, everything's going to be nice, easy, I'm going to go away smiling and heart-warmed but the reality is, while love is a wonderful thing, it's hard. It's wonderful to be on the receiving end of it, but sometimes love and to love others, and even the people in this room sometimes are hard to love. So if you want to have a selfish perspective, if you want a selfish perspective, you think, well, at least everyone else me around me is being encouraged to love people other than themselves, and I'm one of them. Now in our previous two weeks, by way of introduction, in our first week, as we went through Galatians chapter 5, we looked at the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And we saw how they are complete at odds with one another. That the things of the flesh will diminish and squander the work of the Spirit in our life. But the same way we saw that wonderful promise that but if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of of the flesh. And last week in particular we focused on how to produce fruit. We looked at who produces it, being the fruit of the Spirit, being something that the Holy Spirit works and enables, but something to which we are also given responsibility and called to produce. We looked at what it means to have good soil, what is, how do we put ourselves in a good place in order to bear fruit. We'll probably look at this definition a few times because it's very helpful as we're looking at a series on the fruit of the spirit. What do we mean by fruit of the spirit? And the definition that we've landed on is this. The fruit of the spirit or spiritual fruit is any transformation enabled by the spirit in the life of a spirit led believer to bring about Christ likeness in thoughts, attitudes and actions. One of the things that we concluded last week, that is, if we desire to produce fruit, we took an analogy like if we wanted to have apples in our backyard. If your desire is to have apples in your backyard, your primary pursuit isn't apples. Your primary pursuit is buying an apple tree, planting in the ground, looking after it. In the same sense, in order to bear an abundant fruit, we need to go to the primary source. We need to abide in Christ. Rather than just pursuing fruit in and of itself, that the fruit is the byproduct of a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. Today, as we begin to look at some of the specifics of these spiritual graces, as I call them, or or traits, and as we mentioned over the last couple of weeks, we're not just looking at the nine things mentioned in verses 22 and 23, because those verses end with, and things like these, to suggest that this transformation of Christ like character is not just nine only things. But today as we begin with love is not just because it's the first one in the list. It is the first one in the list in verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 5 but what we're going to see is that love is the primary foundation from which all of the others come. It is the essential character and is the source for all other spiritual graces. To give you a bit of a as to where we're headed to today these are the topics we're looking at. The priority of love That love gives whatever the cost. That love willingly gives towards the need of others. That love sacrifices in order to forgive. And then the fun question, can I love someone without liking them? So that's where we're headed today, starting with the priority of love. Now throughout Paul's writings you see a regular emphasis on this idea of love and how love is one of the central pursuits of the Christian. We've already seen in Galatians 5, 13 and 14 that the law is fulfilled in one word, that you love your neighbour as yourself, he said. But as we look for two other examples through Paul's writings, how we see how Paul places a strong emphasis and centrality on love. 1 Corinthians 13 that we've had read earlier on. He concludes in verse 13, Now faith, hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these in love. Now in that same chapter we saw in the earlier part, it says, even if I have the ability to move mountains, but I haven't got love, I'm nothing. And what you will also notice as we read through that when it says love is patient, love is kind, love is all these other things, we see that some of this expression of what First Corinthians calls love you'll see some of those things in the list are some of the things we also see in Galatians five as the fruit of the Spirit. Hence why I say that love is the foundation from which the other fruit will flow. But also in another passage, which is very similar to the wording of the fruit of the Spirit, in Colossians 3, Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So here again we have this analogy that love is the foundation that binds together all these other spiritual graces. Jesus himself taught that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. One to love God and the other to love your neighbour as yourself. And upon this foundation, we can rightly relate to God and rightly relate to others. One of the things we saw last week is, because it is the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit that the Spirit produces, the power and the enabling to do all of these things is the Holy Spirit. Although we are also given the responsibility to depend upon and to be led by the Spirit to produce fruit. But because it's the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit, then it is a fruit which is characterised by God Himself. So it's not surprising, as Paul encourages people in Galate, sorry Ephesians five, he says, "Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God." So true love is found in imitating God. And the example which we are given of how God has demonstrated his love is in that Christ gave himself up for us. So, love is the foundation of all spiritual graces. But also, when we look to 1 John, we'll see that it is a defining mark of one who has genuinely come to trust in Jesus. John writes, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him: whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's how closely related John sees it. If you love God, the natural implication is you will love those who are around you. He saw it as being a foreign idea to claim to love God while not loving people around you. If you really genuinely love God, you will do and love the things that he loves. So it's not just saying if you love God, then out of compulsion you will, you will you'll do this because you feel like you have to. But the sign of a genuine love for God is that you will love and value and cherish the things he loves, values and cherishes. Hence why verse 20 John calls the person a liar who hates his brother. To claim to love God and not do that is a love that is not true. It's kind of like we say, I love God, but not enough to love that person. When it comes to weddings, we regularly read from 1 Corinthians 13, which gives us a very good picture of what love looks like. And it ultimately speaks of actions that look at keeping the other person's best interest at heart, desiring the good of the other. Now, I'm not normally one for expanded or amplified Bible translations, but Jerry Bridges, who wrote The Pursuit of Holiness, kind of expands on it, not in a way that adds to it, but just further highlights how each of these things that says love is, how and why we're called to these things because of love. He expresses it in this way, verses 4 to 6. I am patient with you because I love you and want to forgive you. I am kind to you because I love you and want to help you. I do not envy your possessions or your gifts because I love you and want you to have the best. I do not boast about my attainments because I love you and want to hear about yours. I am not proud because I love you and I want to esteem you before myself. I am not rude because I love you and I care about your feelings. I am not self-seeking because I love you and I want to meet your needs. I'm not easily angered by you because I love you and want to overlook your offences. I do not keep a record of your wrongs because I love you and love covers a multitude of sins. So it doesn't really add anything that's not already implied there in the, in the scriptures but just a reminder that in each of those things, love is these things and every one of them is, is, comes out of a desire for the better in the other person. So we establish love as primary, as the foundation to all Christ-like character and conduct. But now as we look at what is the nature of Christian love, what does, it, what does this love look like that we're called to? And the first of three we're going to look at is this, that love gives whatever the cost. Again, we're going back to 1 John a, a number of times throughout the sermon. I remember once with our youth group in the church I had back in Mafra, we did a Bible study through 1 John and people were like It just repeats itself. It just keeps telling us to love one another. You want to know what? Sometimes we need to be kept being reminded because we're not very good at it. In 1 John 3.16, John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. So in the example of Christ, we see the extent of love to which we are to have for one another. True love gives at any cost. Now, the example of Christ that we have, the way God ultimately expressed his love towards us, cost him his son on the cross in a cruel death to pay the price for our sins. And the biggest challenge of 1 John 3.16 is we're challenged to do the same. It says we ought to lay down our life for the brothers also. Does that seem easy? There'll be certainly aspects of it where people come to our mind and think, "Now, a family member or, or a little kid, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly lay down my life for them. But as we look through these things in the scriptures, they don't come with, with the restrictions or qualification for who is worthy to be a recipient of these things. It doesn't say love these people except for in these circumstances or except for these types of people. In fact, I'll say up front, none of the fruit of the Spirit have such limitations upon who we are to exercise them toward nor upon what circumstances are they deserving to be exercised. If anything, the work of the Spirit shines brightest when it is exercised to those who clearly don't deserve it, who, who by a natural human sense our desire would not be to do so. Because anyone can be nice to the people they already love. But if you want to see the work of the Spirit in the life of someone, when they are able to forgive, when they are able to work for the benefit of someone who is actively hostile towards them. Again, the example and the precinct we have was set by Jesus. Who Romans, Paul tells us in Romans, God showed his love for us, then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the example we've got of how how we show the extent of our love is Christ. And what Christ done is he didn't come when we were all feeling sorry about ourselves. While we were still sinners, while we were hostile towards him, while we didn't want him, while we rebelled against him, while we were living as enemies of his, he died for us. That's the love that we're called to. A love that gives for the benefit of others, at great cost even those people who annoy you even those people who might actually tell you they hate you you can see why it's called the fruit of the spirit, there's no way I can muster that up to want to work for the benefit of someone who's constantly working against me and is hostile towards me but that's the nature of Christian love, the stakes are high because Christ is our example and the stakes are high not just for a restricted pool of people you find it easy to, but the stakes are equally high for everyone who is around us. It's the person who asks, Jesus, who is my neighbour? He pretty much got the answer, everyone is. Love gives at any cost. The next is love willingly gives towards the need of others. If we continue where we left off in, in 1 John we had just read verse 16 now. Verses 17 and 18 say, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When you read verses like this, the natural part of us wants to go to Romans 12:8, where it speaks about some people having the gift of giving and think, whew, whew. Lucky I don't have that gift because here it's talking about now if I see someone with a need I've got to give to it and clearly I'm, I mustn't have that gift. Look here at verse 17, addressing a group of Christians. John says, if anyone, doesn't say if those who have a specific gift, if anyone has the world's good, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If anyone sees the need, we are to be generous towards those needs. The conclusion John reaches is that refusing to do so is neither loving in truth or in action. From John's perspective, it's a complete foreign concept to say you love God and not have an interest in contributing to the the needs of others materially. I should say there will be a number of things I don't get to cover in the full Content which they need to be done so that does not mean that you neglect supplying for your family and all those things which we are called to do in the scriptures but where we have the ability to is probably a good defining way of referring to that but it's a natural result isn't it if we value God first and foremost and if we do as we're called to do to value others more highly than ourself and if we recognise that every good and perfect gift comes down from God as therefore everything we have is God is God's possessions that we are given stewardship to look after. The question is, how do we look after? How would God use the things that he's entrusted to us? And both John and James tell us, if you have something, you see a need. If we love God, we are called to provide and help out. Now the human side of us easily thinks, yeah, I'll do that if I've got something extra, like... Or if I've got something I'm not using at all, it's not inconvenient. Yeah, I'll do that. These are not distinctions that these verses make. Not distinctions that John makes, not distinctions that James makes. It says, if you have. We've already seen that love gives whatever the cost. If you want to see an example of those who saw the need to give materially to those in need... You won't find a clearer example than the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul is going around taking a collection for the poor believers in Jerusalem. We see this description of the Macedonians, which the Philippian church was part of as well, as we mentioned. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joys and their extreme poverty, so they're in extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means, on their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. So here they were, they were quite poor themselves. They saw a need, not only did they give in proportion to what they had, but they gave beyond their means and actually had to convince Paul to allow them to do that. So on one hand, you've got the picture of the Macedonians who've got nothing, who give abundantly because they see people with a need and they think, well, we can do this. There's a need, I can meet that need. Then on the other hand, we've just celebrated Christmas where the majority of time it's people who are well off giving things that people don't necessarily want to other people who are well off. They're two very different extremes, aren't they? A wholehearted love for God according to the Bible is expressed both in a love for all people that desires and acts for their benefit and also does so without expecting anything in return. Because you know how sometimes when you do something for someone and you kind of hope that they'll reciprocate with something or at least give you thanks? When we expect something or, or get upset when something doesn't happen in return tends to indicate there was still at least something in our motivation for doing it in the first place that was about us. So by nature, love gives at any cost, provides for the needs of others, and thirdly, love sacrifices to forgive. Still in 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he, he loved us and sent us His son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So how did God ultimately express his love? By sending his son to a people who were hostile towards him, living as enemies of his, to die on a cross to pay the price for our sin so that we could be forgiven. So forgiveness was a very real available option. Then in verse 11 it says, love it. if God has loved us, so loved us, or if God has loved us in this way, and he has, then we also ought to do the same for one another. If God has loved us in such a way that at great cost, he went out of his way in order to bring out reconciliation and forgiveness, then that's the sort of love that we should have for one another as well. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things in the Christian life. And anyone who's been mistreated even a little bit or particularly a lot knows how hard it is and some of the hurt that can be associated there. Yet our call to forgive, again like all of the other things we have been mentioned, is not given with a prescription of a restriction for who is worthy of receiving it or under what circumstances they're worthy of receiving. We are called to forgive in a manner like we have seen in God who sent Christ into the world to a people who were hostile, who were not sorry. That being said, some people are really easy to forgive. It's not hard to forgive Sarah. It's not hard to forgive Miller. It's not hard to forgive Mackenzie. That's my wife and kids for those who uh, who are visiting. But some people are hard, aren't they? Some people are really hard. The worldly wisdom tells you this. They say, don't forgive someone until they've done something in return. Or don't forgive someone until they've shown remorse, or until somehow they've suffered a little bit too to make up for what you've suffered. That's not biblical wisdom. The Bible's not going to teach you that. If that was the case, Jesus would not have come, would he? If he waited until we were all sorry, until until he took some initiative? And I can guarantee, even in a room a quarter the size of the number of people who are here this morning, if I said, "Can you think of someone who you either haven't forgiven or you find hard to forgive?" I guarantee there's a number of people in this room right now who can think of names, what they've done and the reasons why they won't forgive them?" It comes very naturally to us. They did this. They don't deserve to be forgiven. Yet we're called to love in a manner like God who took initiative toward water people who were not sorry, who are still actively hostile. The Bible calls us to forgive like that, to let go, to not hold it against them. And it's probably even worthwhile telling them that, particularly if you've told them, "No, oh, I'm never going to forgive you. And here comes the hard part. Forgive them and let go regardless of how they respond. Now we are called and we are responsible to forgive in a manner like God, which is we take the initiative regardless of where the other person's at or how they respond. How they respond is neither our responsibility nor should it be our motivation We're not motivated by, I'll forgive this person because I think they're going to uh, come grovelling back or, or ask for my great forgiveness. We are to forgive in the way in which God has forgiven us. So love sacrifices to forgive. And the last and interesting heading, can I love someone without liking them? Uh, Because we see much of the the biblical focus on love is talking about actions towards working for the benefit or for the good of somebody else. And when we read things like that, it can seem a little bit like it's a duty. Say, this is what I've got to do. God tells me I've got to do this. I don't feel like it, but I'm a Christian. This is what Christians do. Often you'll hear someone say, I can love that person, but I'm never going to like them. It sounds nice. It appeals to us. Is it something that we can support biblically? I think not. It's almost like a saying, I can do things for their benefit because I love God and God tells me I have to, but I don't want to. And if it wasn't for my obligation to God, I'd do nothing. The call to love all, to love your neighbour as yourself, that is all who are around us, is not separate from an emotional drive or an urge to love them. A call to love people isn't separated from the fact that we should be driven by a desire, so we have transformed to be more like Christ, to actually want to do that. Hence why it's a work of God that's certainly never going to come to us naturally. We see this both in the writings of Peter and Paul. Peter says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the living, through the living and abiding word of God. Paul speaks of the sincerity again in Romans 12. Love, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. So it talks about loving one another, let it be sincere, let it be out of a pure heart. We need so much more than just to decide to do acts of love. We need God to do a deep work within us that we would desire to love people. Because the primary reason, I think, why we don't act in love towards people is because we don't feel like it. We don't have the desire, we don't have the urge or the drive to do so. And other than the work of God within our life, we will not have that. And we need to pray earnestly that He would so change us to love others in a way in which He has loved us. So we look quite extensively at love, but as I said, there will be a number of questions that are raised in some of the things I've said that time didn't allow to enter in all the ins and outs of what about in this situation. But we saw how love is the primary foundation of all this other Christ-like character. But love, as God defines it, we've seen is hard. It's costly. And it's very different than what the world considers love to be. Because we have covered a lot of territory. If you have questions about specific things that we've raised or the, just other implications or what, about, what do I do in this situation... Um, certainly do come have a chat we can do that any time but to give a quick recap of what we've covered firstly love gives whatever the cost we said none of the fruit of the spirit come with a prescription of saying this only applies to these individuals or these circumstances true love gives regardless of cost and that high standard of love that we see as an example in Christ is the high standard we should uphold for all Secondly, love gives, and not begrudgingly, to meet the needs of others. We saw as far as the Apostle John said in 1 John, how can you claim to love God while you see someone in need and not meet it? He just saw them completely at odds to one another. I mentioned that doesn't mean that you neglect your own family because we are called to, to love and care for our family and for other things. I think probably a good way of summarising the words of Proverbs, do not withhold good, from those to whom it is due when it is within your power to act. So in your means of having carried out your, your, your duties to God in terms of your family and all those other things, if you have the ability to help someone in their time of need and you have the power to do so, do not withhold it. Third, love gives at great cost in order to forgive. That I probably think is the most difficult And if I'm being honest by responses I've seen around the room, it applies to a number of people in this room. And if you've been challenged by unforgiveness or difficulty in forgiving someone and you've been convicted to do something about that, please don't forget to act on that. Whether it be someone within the church or somewhere, whatever it is, do not hold on to it. Failing to forgive someone not only does it have no effect on the other person, it actually is quite crippling for yourself. And it's not what we're called to hold on to. And lastly, loving people does involve liking people. Even people who are our enemies. Even people who are not pleasant to us. Because the example we have of how God loved us is in sending Christ while we were still sinners. While we were enemies. While we were hostile towards him. In everything we've spoken of this morning, Jesus is the supreme example. And as we looked at some of these ways in which Christ has interacted with people and we're called to do the same, we think, that's outside my reach. No human being could ever do that. What's he doing trying to call me to do things that are just impossible to do? I can't forgive this person. I can't love this person. I can't do nice things for people who are nasty to me. God has never called us to live a life that he is not able to enable us and equip us to do Jesus' own closest followers the disciples had some very real questions when Jesus said soon I'm going to be going I'm going to be returning to my father and they're thinking how are we supposed to live this life that you've called us to live if you're not with us and during those interactions in John 14 and 15 Jesus says I'm going to send you another helper now you could just kind of casually flip over while you're reading that and think, oh well, they haven't got Jesus, but at least they're going to have something. They'd be better off if they had Jesus. But in the Greek, well, in terms of the biblical words used in, in the New Testament, there are two words that can be used to translate another. There's, there's three, but there's two that actually get used in the Bible. One is heteros, which means another of a different kind. Hence, heterosexual is people of different kinds or well, alos, is another of the same kind. When Jesus says, I will send you another helper, which do you think he used? He said, I will send you another alos of the same kind. That every th- they're not somehow let down by having something inferior, but they are given a helper of exactly the same kind of having Christ there with them in the sending of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? It's the same Holy Spirit that when we come to faith in him, Ephesians 1.13, comes and dwells within us. So these things that we are called to do and the example, high example we see set for us in Christ are the very things that he has provided his spirit to work within us. If you are in Christ, you have that same help for the things that we've spoken of this morning and for the things we've spoken in previous weeks and for everything else the Bible calls us to do may we trust him may we give thanks as we see his work within us and may we walk by the spirit that we may no longer gratify the desires of the flesh let's close in prayer Heavenly Father we thank you that you have loved us help us to appreciate again the way in which you have shown the greatest act of love toward us when there was absolutely nothing that we did that merited or deserved that love toward us. As we contemplate the way in which you have dealt with us and you have called us to emulate that type of love, help us to do that. We know very well that based on just trying to do it, we cannot. Lord, help us to trust you so deeply Help us to have confidence that your spirit in your presence dwells within us. And may we give you thanks when we see you bringing about that work that you've always planned to do to, to bring us to be more like Christ. Help us to never take credit for that and say, look how good, look what I've achieved. But just as we are thankful for the salvation you have brought to us that we didn't do anything to achieve, that we can give you thanks as you have changed us in ways that we could never do ourselves. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. And Lord, may it have its work within us uh, today and for the rest of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.